Our Heavenly Father, we bow here in your presence. Lord, once again, we thank you for the privilege of coming together to worship you, to fellowship together, just to love and encourage one another. Now, Father, as we look into your word, I pray that you would open it up for us, that you would challenge our thinking, perhaps where we have gone astray. And Father, I pray that we would be blessed for having been here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why don't you all be seated. You know, whenever I was uh, raising my children when they were still at home and when they were young, uh, and I think this is probably true for everybody in here who's a parent, there would be times when one would want to do something and I'd let them do it, and the other, because of their age or circumstances, I wouldn't let them do it, and then I would get the same old routine. Well, Daddy, that's not fair. You treat them different than me. Or it, it went on. It didn't matter what the situation. That would usually be the response. And there would be times when I would draw them close and I would whisper in their ear. I'd say, now, honey, life is not fair. Now, get over it. Now, <laughs> maybe maybe you did that. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I doubt it. But uh, at any rate, you know, when it comes to our relationship to the Lord, we as believers do the same thing. We will look at the things that God is doing, things that are going on in life, and we accuse God all the time of not being fair. Sometimes we say it, sometimes we just think it. Um, either way, in our hearts, we know that what we're doing is accusing God and saying to God out of anger, mostly, that that wasn't fair that you did that. Have you ever questioned God's fairness? You know, you know be honest with yourself. You don't have to tell me, but at least be honest with yourself. I believe that every Christian at some point in life has questioned whether God was fair in what he did and how he dealt with people and so forth. I look on the TV and sometimes I'll see these Christian organizations who are trying to raise money and they'll show photograph, I mean, uh, video or pictures of children over in a third world country living in a garbage dump. And it just breaks your heart to see that and you can't help but to wonder what in the world is God doing? How did God allow that to happen? We look at poverty in the United States. We see people living in cardboard boxes on the streets and homeless people, and we say to ourselves, well, what is going on? <clears throat> Where is God in all this? Did God forget about those people? We look at the children who are abandoned and abused by adults. Horrific things happen in the lives of some of these children. And we ask ourselves, well, where is God, and how can this possibly be fair? Birth defects. Children are born with birth defects, and we question God. Our hearts are broken, and we question God, why did this happen? I can remember as a small boy growing up in North Carolina, my mother used to take me grocery shopping with her, and we'd go to the parking shop. And uh, I can remember that even as a young little boy, um, there were a set of twins conjoined at the, at the hip and their size. They worked in the produce department there at the, at the grocery store. They always had a smile on their face, and they were always very helpful. But I couldn't help but wonder, even as a small boy, you know, God, why? Why did that happen to them? Why did you let that happen? And somehow, even at that age, I was questioning whether God was fair or not, because it just didn't seem fair to me. Now, I know that there are examples in Scripture that we look at, and we ask the same question. We see how God dealt with people in the Bible, what he did to people in the Bible, and we throw our hands up with, uh, you know, just frustrated because we can't give an answer. We don't know. We don't have a response to people who say, well, God isn't fair in what he did there. And 
and it was just wrong, and how can you believe or worship a God like that? Last week we looked, as we've been studying the book of Joshua, we came across this text, this story in the Bible, this event that took place, where God has brought the children of Israel into the land of Canaan, and their first battle is the Battle of Jericho. And we saw, and I told you last week, we will talk about this this week, this one verse that I want to read to you again out of the portion we looked at last week and talk about it. It says this, that when they came in and God dropped the, the um, walls of Jericho, that the soldiers went in, and here's what they were told to do. It says they devoted the city, and this is Joshua 6, 21. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. And as I ask you this question, because sometimes we read through passages like this, we don't really stop to ask what's going on here. But I said to you in describing it, I said, now just imagine as these men who were not battle-hardened soldiers by any means, go into the city, and they've been told by God to kill everything in it. So they encounter a pregnant mother, and God said, kill her. Or they encounter a mother with a small baby in her arms or with several children beside her uh, trying to scurry and get out of the way and hide, and God said, kill them. And those soldiers must have just wondered and questioned, God, what are you doing and why are we doing this? Because this just seems so unfair that this would happen. And so that raised the question, I told you we'd talk about it this week, and that the question is this, is God fair? Um, is God fair in the way he deals with people? Is God fair in the way he even deals with us in our lives? Now let me tell you what I think, and that's what this message is. I'm going to show you some scriptures and things and try to tell you how I view this and what I think of this. And you're going to have to decide for yourself where you land on this and what you think. And tonight, when you get into your small groups, you're going to talk about this and be honest, okay? Be honest about how you feel, what you think, and the experiences that you've been through. Because it's very important that we as Christians come together and talk about this and admit our feelings and frustrations and the way we think and try to bring our thinking and feelings in line with what Scripture says. Now, having said that, let me tell you what I think. In, qu in answer to the question, is God fair? My answer is no, God is not fair. God never claimed to be fair. And if that somehow disturbs you, I understand that. I, I really do. But let's talk about how we define fairness. Because most of us, if we were asked to give a definition or at least the description of what we mean by fairness, it would go something like this. That fairness means that everybody has equal opportunity and that everybody's treated the same. Nobody's given more or opportunity or blessings than somebody else and that God is equal in his dealings with mankind. And I think you know as well as I do that that's just not true because that we can see in our everyday life and we can see from scripture. Now let me give you a couple of passages or stories in the Bible, events, parables if you will, some of them, that depict this and show this, illustrate this. Here's a situation in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 2, because Jesus gives a parable to the people. And here's what he says. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 2, he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers in his vineyard. 
he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. So here's the parable. Now the landowner represents God in this story. And it says here that, that the landowner went out and hired somebody at 6 o'clock in the morning. That's when the day began, the work day. He said, I'll pay you a denarius, which was the going rate for a day's wage. He said, you go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you a fair wage. He agreed and he went out. Now the story goes on that he went in, of the landowner and he hired some other workers at the, at the ninth hour and he hired some other workers at the twelfth hour and some other workers at the eleventh hour. Now they all go into the vineyard and they all work and they come now at the end of the day to get their wages. And the story picks up in verse 9. It says, The workers who were hired after five in the afternoon came and each received the denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them received also, each of them also received the denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Though these who were hired at last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us, who has borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. We worked from 6 o'clock this morning for a denarius, and these people came in at 5, ended at 6, and they too have been paid a full day's wage. This isn't fair. You know what? It's really not. It's not fair. If you try to define fairness as equality among people and God treating them the same. Now, the story goes on, and I'm not going to read all of this, to where God, or the, the landowner, which represents God, but he's basically saying, he says, now have I cheated you? He said, you told me this morning that we agreed you would work a full day and I'll pay you a denarius, and I've done that. How have I been unfair to you? And he goes on to say, if I want to hire somebody else later on and pay them the same, how does that change the agreement that you and I have? And down in verse 15 of this chapter, here's what the landowner says. He says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money, or are you envious because I am generous? Interesting question. You're telling me that I'm not fair, not because I cheated you, but because I was generous to somebody else. But you see, this is what we do, we as Christians. We'll look at other people and we'll determine whether, well, you know what, they got, they've really been blessed financially. Their health is fine. Their children grew up to be fine. They've got this and they've, you know, been blessed in this way. And look at my life because it's quite different. And I've been serving God. I've been faithful to the Lord. And I don't have those things. So God is unfair. And if that's how you determine fairness, then I agree with you. God is not fair. God is not fair, but here's the catch. He is always just, and he is always right. And this is the rub for us as believers, because in our minds we're thinking that because God isn't fair, that God is not right or just, that he's not justified in what he does. And this poses a real problem. And you've got to stop and you've got to ask yourself some questions. When I say to you, as the Bible depicts God, that God is just and God is right, but God may not be fair or equal. See, in our minds, we're thinking that somehow outside of God, there's this arbitrary set of rules that God is bound to obey. And you and I have to come to the realization 
that outside of God, there is no other set of rules. And if God does something, he doesn't do it because it's the right thing to do. When he does it, it becomes the right thing to do. He sets the standard. God, it says in the Bible that God, you can never ever charge God with sin because at his very core of his being, he is just and right and righteous and holy. And so whatever God decides to do and the way in which he treats people on earth, then it is the right thing to do. And what he has done is just and righteous and holy. See, this is hard for us to understand or even to accept. Because we as human beings will always struggle with this human nature of ours that somehow fights against the sovereignty of God. We don't want to let God be sovereign. We don't want to confess or to admit that God is in charge and what God does is right because I want to judge that. You see, I want to determine for myself if I think that's right or fair. And as long as you have that attitude, as long as you think that, then you're going to always struggle with this question. And there has to come a point in time where you step back and you, want, you, you realize that because God is sovereign, God is always right and God is always just. And when God deals with, uh, say, the workers or in some other situation, um, whatever God did was right. Who determines what is right or just or fair? Think about this. When God pours out his wrath on man, it's always harsh. When God just judged Jericho, it was harsh. When God judged people in the Old Testament, it was harsh. When God judged Israel, it was harsh. Uh, God's judgment is always that way. And it will be that way in the end, too, when God judges man. And every time God pours out his wrath, everybody says, well, that's not fair. You see, it's not fair that you would treat people that way. It's not fair that you would do that to those people. But you know what? When God pours out grace and mercy and generosity, like he did in this parable, then there's always somebody saying, that's not fair either. It's almost like God can't win. Nothing I do is going to be fair to you because there will always be somebody that was treated differently and always somebody grumbling and complaining about that. I think that is probably depicted especially clear in the parable of the prodigal son. When, God, when this prodigal son asked his father, again, the father represents God, give me all of my inheritance and let me go. And so his father did that reluctantly, but he gave it to him. And the son, according to the parable, went and squandered the whole thing. He was busy chasing women and drinking and gambling and all the things that men do when they're out on their own like that. And the Bible says that he found himself in, himself in the hog pen because he had no money and couldn't take care of himself. And he finally realized, he said, listen, he said, I'm better off if I go back home and I work for my father as a slave or a servant. He said, I'm better off than where I am now. So he goes back home and his father just welcomes him with open arms, puts a robe on him, a gold ring, and puts him back into the position of the son with an inheritance that he had before. And the older brother now, the older son, gets mad. He says, that's not fair. Because he didn't stay, I did. He didn't work for you, I did. He wasn't good for you and faithful to you, I was. So why are you treating him like me? Father says, do I not have the right 
to take my son and restore him back because I love him. So you see, there's always going to be the situation where somebody thinks that God is not fair, no matter what he does. Now let's take and apply some of the things we've talked about to the situation in Jericho because this is, um, this is an important uh, passage and I want to deal with this. Do you believe that God was just, that God was right in taking the lives of the people in Jericho? And I say, yes, he was. And I believe that the Bible backs that up. Now, here's what you need to remember or, be, or come to grips with, okay? Do you know how long God gave Jericho and the entire land of Canaan, of which Jericho was one city, Israel was coming in to take the entire land, the city was the first on the agenda. But do you know how long God gave the entire land of Canaan to repent? How long he waited? 700 years. 700 years. Now let me show you what I'm talking about. We go all the way back to Abraham. When God called Abraham out of a pagan society, he said, now I'm going to be... I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make a great nation of you and I'm going to put you in this land which I'm going to take you to and so forth and you're going to be the light to the world. So God reached down and saved Abraham and God said all these things to him. And you know the story as it unfolds. He had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel and so forth. Do you know when that took place? When Abraham moved into the land of what was known then as Canaan or would become known as Canaan, and later become Israel, that he moved him in as a lighthouse to everybody that was there, a symbol, a token, an example of God's love and mercy and grace. He just poured out his blessings on Abraham and his family, and everybody around there understood it. They understood that Abraham is blessed by God. His God is God. I mean, people were just coming to that realization all the time. And it goes on down the line to his sons thereafter. That was 700 years before this event took place in Jericho. Now I want you to watch and look at this verse. In Genesis chapter 15, God is talking to Abraham about this promise. And he's telling Abraham, he said, Now there's going to come a point in time where I take you out of this land and put you in bondage to another nation. And you're going to stay there through four generations and I'm going to bring you back. And then you're going to destroy this country and take, take control of it. But notice what he says now, chapter 15, verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. That's depicting the 400 years of captivity. The fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now what does that mean? The Amorites were the people living in the land at that time, along with Canaanites, Jebusites, all these other people. But he says basically this. Abraham, I'm not going to judge them yet because they have not, I have not given up on them. Their sin has not reached its full potential. He said that they are, there's still hope for them. I'm sending you in to be a lighthouse to these people. Your son Isaac and his family will be a lighthouse to these people. Uh, Jacob and his family will be a lighthouse to these people. They will see me pouring out the blessings of heaven on you and they will seek me because of you. Let me tell you something. If God had not called Abraham from all indications in the Old Testament, there would not have been one godly society of people. They were all pagan. And God said, this is the way in which I'll reach them. 
and I'm going to give them what a cumulative ended up being about 700 years. Counting the 430, they were in captivity. The time from Abraham to Jacob, the 40 years of wandering, it all totals up to be about close to 700 years that God waited before he finally brings them into the land and they begin with the destruction of Jericho. So we ask ourselves, well, was God fair? Maybe not, but he was just. These men were a witness in a land that was pagan, and God waited patiently. God brought them out of Egypt and destroyed Egypt in the process, brings them out of the Red and across the Red Sea as he parts the Red Sea, and they brings them into the land of Canaan. And then they go see Rahab. Remember that in chapter 2? The spies go in to see Rahab, and she acknowledges this. She said, let me tell you, all of us have heard about Israel. We knew what happened in Egypt. We knew what happened when you came through the Red Sea. And I am convinced, she says now, that the God of Israel is the one true God because I've seen how he's dealt with your nation, your people. And I'm asking for mercy. And God in his graciousness spared her and her family. I don't know if anybody else throughout the the history of these Canaanite people ever turned to God. I hope so. I believe probably some did. I don't know. But at any rate, God waited, and he waited, and he waited. Until finally God said, your time is up. And I will send my people, Israel, in to judge you. And you've got to remember something about the nation of Israel. They were God's sword. God used them to judge other nations. And in this particular situation, he did this very thing. And you want to know something? God was justified in destroying them. He was justified in doing it. It wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't a spur of the moment. It wasn't because God hated them and you know, above anybody else. It was saying, God said, I gave you the chance. I gave you the time. And you still have rejected me. Now, here's the problem, and that is this, that we as Christians can accept the fact that God judges people like that, pagan nations. God judges sinful people. God does those sort of things. But to see, our problem lies with this, that within that land and within that city of Jericho, there were innocent children. And see, this is where we have our conflict. Because I can understand God destroying sinful people, but what about these little toddlers and these little babies and things like that who had not had an opportunity? And God killed them. How do we justify that? Let me ask you this question. Do you believe that when a baby dies, it goes to hell? See, these are questions we have to deal with, don't we? Not a pleasant thought. And I'll tell you, the Bible just doesn't give us a lot of information in answering that question. What about babies? What about small children? We, we always ask that, but we, we don't know the answer to it. And I'll tell you from studying the Scriptures what I believe is true, and I think you probably believe it too. And I believe that, no, it's not a case where a small child who dies is going to hell. Because God is just, you see. Through Scripture, we find that God did not always hold men accountable for sins they weren't aware of. 
In Galatians, Paul talks about this. He says, before the law was given to Moses, he said there were people who were in ignorance and didn't know what the law was, so God didn't hold them always hold them accountable. Now, they had conscience, and God holds them accountable for their conscience because they knew right from wrong. They just didn't know all the law. But the point is this. Until they knew, God didn't hold them accountable. So we take that same concept and we apply it to children, and we have to come to the conclusion that a holy, righteous, just God would conclude also that a small child who doesn't know right from wrong cannot be held accountable and therefore won't. So we as Christians believe, and I believe this is true, that children who die before whatever point in their life they are able to discern right and wrong are not held accountable and therefore they would not be lost but would be saved. Now let's take that whole thinking, that way of thinking, and again, I can't take you to the chapter and verse to show you this, okay, because the scripture just doesn't address it. But let's take that same concept, that same way of thinking, and go into the land or the city of Jericho and ask ourselves some questions. If these small babies and children were allowed to grow up in a pagan society and reach this point in their life where they are accountable for their sinfulness, what would happen to them if they died then? They'd be lost. But they died as children. I believe that God taking their lives was an act of mercy. It's hard to, to say that. It's hard to get your mind around that. But you've got to understand that when God does things like this, God is just. God is right. And when God does things like this, he has a reason for doing it. You know, we could debate all day the fairness of that, whether God, you know, they could have grown up to be part of Israel, all these questions, and I don't have answers for that. But I believe as we feel sorry and our hearts go out to the children who died there in Jericho, that God was being gracious to them and taking them home to be with him. Now that's what I think. You'll have to deal with this and grapple with this for yourself. But still, we have the question about fairness and equality and all of this. And let me just, as I sort of bring this portion of this message down to a, a close on this part of it anyway, let me say this. The Bible teaches that God is God. And we're not. We have always gotten in trouble when we try to play God. We've always gotten in trouble when we try to judge God. And so I'm saying to you, God is God, and the sooner you come to that conclusion and surrender to that, then the better off you're going to be. Because as long as you try to judge whether God is right or wrong, it's a no-win situation. And you will always struggle. You will always struggle. And so my advice to you is to not do that. My advice to you is to work through this and come to the conclusion that God is God and I've got to be okay with that and that whatever God does is right. Let me read you this passage. It's in Romans chapter 9. Paul is dealing with the same question. See, people were saying, well, God isn't fair. God isn't fair. And here's what Paul says in verses 14 through 15. He says, Okay, in the middle of his argument now. 
He says, well, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He's not unjust. If he wants to destroy Jericho, then God is right in doing so. He jumps on down now to verse 20 and 21. He says this, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? In other words, to question him on that. Accuse him that he's unfair. Who are you to do that? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? In other words, God has done it. God has a reason. And he didn't tell you. So what are you going to do? He says you need to come to the realization that God is God. And you need to let it go. And with this realization that God is always right. And God is always just. I'll come back to this in a moment when I kind of sum this up. But I want to I kind of take a little different turn here, okay? Because in putting this together, another thought occurred to me. And that is this, that you need to understand the unique situation that God had with Israel. The circumstances were unique to Israel. Never to be repeated again. Let me explain. Do you know what a theocracy is? A theocracy. It is a group of people, a country, or a nation that is controlled or led by God. Israel was the really the only one true theocracy that has ever existed. Now that term is used for nations over in the Islamic world where uh, the religious leaders rule the nation, but in reality that's the one and only true theocracy was this relationship that they had, or God had with Israel. Now let me explain what that looked like. In a theocracy, God spoke to them verbally, and they heard it. God led them visibly. They saw it, the cloud, the fire, many other ways God led them. God governed them directly with laws and was directly through the prophets telling them what God had said. God protected them. God blessed them. God chastened them. God was their king. There was nobody else. And it was a very unique situation. And like I said before, Israel was in effect God's sword. God said, I'm your ruler and here's what I tell you to do. I've created you to be very uniquely special just to me. And you go in and you destroy these nations. I've given them enough time and I'm done with them. Judgment is falling. And Israel did that. And Israel was God's arm of judgment. They were literally building God's kingdom on earth. That's the reason when Jesus came, Jesus went to the Jews first. He said, I'm going to the house of Israel first. And he presented himself as the Messiah and basically, if you accept me, we'll set the kingdom up right here and now. Now, God knew that they weren't going to do it, but nevertheless, the offer was real. And they were establishing a kingdom on earth. Never to be repeated again. This is important. We look at ourselves as American citizens and American Christians, and we ask this question. 
are we in America a theocracy? No. We in America, as Christians here in this country, were never, ever established as a theocracy. God never intended it to be that way. That was uniquely just Israel. There's a difference between one nation under God and one nation ruled by God. Big difference. We in this country submit to the Bible and its authority over our lives and we are born again and the Holy Spirit leads us in our everyday lives and calls us to be witnesses in this country and in the world. And that is one nation under God. It used to be, anyway, that our government sought to govern by the commandments given in the Scriptures and so forth. That's different than Israel. God was their king. God told them what to do. God dealt directly into their lives. This is why he got mad when they asked for a king. When they asked, Lord, give us a king like other country or other people. And God got mad at them and gave them Saul. Because God said, I'm your king. But they didn't want that. They wanted something different. Now, because we are not a theocracy, listen to me very carefully. We are not building a kingdom on this earth. Our kingdom is spiritual. This is what we're told in the New Testament. As believers, we come from all walks of life. We are bond and free, male and female, black, white, whatever. It doesn't matter. We come together to build and look forward to a kingdom in heaven. Israel was the only one given the responsibility to build that group of people, that kingdom on earth, because if they had not, like I said before, from all indications, there would not have ever been a godly nation of people. So God used them and God called them. Now along those same lines, let me say this. God never called us as believers, us as Americans even, to destroy pagan nations. He never said, this is your responsibility. Anybody that's not Christian or anybody that doesn't follow me, you go out and destroy them. Now with Israel, he did. I've given them enough time. They haven't turned to me. Get rid of them. Rid the land of them. But he didn't tell us that. That's not our, our mandate as believers. That's important. You know why? Because in our history as a church, that has not always been done. Listen to me. We go back to the Middle Ages and Catholicism, which was basically the face of the church at that time. Anybody that wasn't Catholic was killed. You have what is called the Inquisition during the Middle Ages, where they tortured and butchered many, many people who were not Catholic. You had Bloody Mary come to power for a brief period of time in Europe and literally slaughtered thousands and thousands of people because they weren't Christian. You had the, the um, crusades that took off and decided that if we're going to establish God's kingdom on earth, we've got to get Jerusalem back away from those Islamic people. So they went down there and started a war down there. All because of this. They did not understand the difference between what God did with Israel when they went into a land like Canaan and destroyed it, and the church. And they kept thinking to themselves, we are the church. We to build God's kingdom, our church on earth. This is what God wants. And no, he doesn't. There have been times in our history where God has used us as a people 
not because of a pagan nation, but in order to bring judgment on a nation. It wasn't because we sought it, but because it was cast upon us. World War II is a perfect example. God used us and other nations to judge Japan and Germany and to rid the world of that aggressive society. But that's not our mandate. We are simply protecting ourselves, and sometimes God uses that. Israel was God's sword. We're not. God said we fight a spiritual battle. We build a a spiritual kingdom. And what happened with Israel is unique to them. Now, this is important to remember because if you keep thinking that just because God dealt in the Old Testament with Israel and there was carnage and killing and butchering and you think somehow that we as in this day and age as Christian society have the responsibility to do the same to pagan nations, you're wrong. We don't. God called them to do that then. And you've got to read the Old Testament through that lens. If what God did with them, God was justified in doing it because God had given these societies many, many years and many opportunities to repent, and they didn't. When they did, God relented like he did with Nineveh. God offered to relent with Sodom and Gomorrah. If you can find just ten righteous people, I won't destroy the city because God was a God of grace. But they couldn't, and God destroyed them. That seems horrible but God is just and I want to close with just giving you three things to remember three applications that I want you to take home with you okay here they are number one is this that God is always right no matter what he does he's always right you've got to be convinced of that and if you are not you will struggle in your life Because everything that happens, you will always be accusing God of being unfair, unjust, and almost sinful the way they do. But God is always right, no matter what he does. Second thing is this, that God is always the God of love and grace, no matter what he does. God never changed. See, we think that God was different in the Old Testament than he is in the New, and he's not. Grace and love and mercy were always seen in the Old Testament. Rahab being one example. That's who God is. And God is the same today. And he always will be. And regardless of what happens in your life, regardless if you have a child that is born with a birth defect, regardless if a loved one dies early, regardless if your health is failing, regardless if you're financially insolvent now, regardless of what God does, or allows to happen. God didn't change. And he's just and he's right and he has always been and always will be the God of love and grace. In Isaiah 55, 8, it says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Don't try to put me in a box, he says. Don't try to put me in a box and define who I am. You can't do it. I've told you who I am. I've, I've demonstrated who I am. I saved your soul. You know that I love you. The third point is this. That you are better off trusting him no matter what he does. You are better off trusting him no matter what he does. I can't 
Guys, I can't, I can't defend God. I can't explain God. So you and I are really put in a position where when something terrible happens in our lives and we want to say, God, you're unfair, God says, are you going to trust me or not? And as horrible as it seems, will you trust me? You know who I am. Yeah, I'm a God of vengeance at times, and I'm a God that, that does things that you think are wrong, and, but I'm, God, I'm a God or the God that is just and right and holy, and above all else, I love you, and I'm a God of grace and mercy. Those things never change. So yeah, there'll be times in my life when I can't explain God. I can't even defend God. I don't understand him sometimes. But I've learned to trust him no matter what. Guys, I'm going to tell you from experience that you're going to have to work your way through this. And in the end, you'll have to come to the conclusion that everybody else that has ever proclaimed to, to believe in, in, God, in the God of Israel or the God of the universe, that he's right. He's right. And that's where we stand. And we trust that. We believe it. If you're here this morning and you don't know what salvation is all about, it's about you believing that Jesus died on a cross for you. In John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God promises you that. And because God is just and right, God will fulfill the promise if you put your faith in him. If you don't understand that and you have questions about that, I would love to talk with you. And so I make this offer to you. Just come and see me after the service or make an appointment during the week. I will sit down with you and talk about your relationship with the Lord and try to help you with any questions you have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, Father, we are humbled because we realize that there have been times in our lives where we have accused you of almost being sinful in the things that you've done. Because, Lord, we have accused you of being unfair and unjust and unrighteous, and, Father, it's just our own ignorance. And we're sorry. Father, that doesn't help us to feel differently, but it is our prayer that as we acknowledge your sovereignty, as we accept your righteousness, as we learn to trust you, that, Father, our feelings will change. Father, as we go into these meetings tonight and we sit down and we're honest with each other about our feelings and about our doubts and about our fears, Father, I pray that each one of us will work through this and with the help of other people, that it's a safe place to say, yeah, I don't know that I agree that God is fair or even right because of something horrible in my life. And, Father, may we as a church rally around those people and love them and show them God's grace and love and mercy. And through your Holy Spirit, I pray that we, as your people, would surrender our will to yours. In Jesus' name we pray.